Imagine if social media platforms like Facebook decided to be kinder, more humane, more mentally healthy places. Imagine if they asked themselves, couldn't we get more attention by being something people wanted to be on rather than something they feel is like their dirty habit or they're like, they feel guilty every time they go on there. You know, I, I think about the, you know, I don't Cigarettes didn't have the option of transforming into being exercise. You, you know what I mean? Like you couldn't be like, you're going to puff this and instead of nicotine, you're just going to like build your muscles and your lung capacity, right? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. And sometimes I'll be on Facebook or Twitter, maybe Instagram, and I'll think, is this thing, this concept, social media as a collective entity, is it good or is it very deeply bad? I mean, I'm talking to people and humans, especially ones with depression, are well served by social contact. On the other hand, no, I'm not talking to people. I'm typing and reading and experiencing an artificially constructed version of the person that interacts with the constructed version of me. Human contact is good for depression. Social media, I'm not so sure. Our guest is a longtime social media innovator and a thinker, writer, and speaker on the subject. He's been a tech entrepreneur, started two tech companies, and has been an advisor to the Obama administration. He used social media to pull himself out of a depressive episode, but he sees a lot of problems with it, too. I'm Anil Dash. I'm the CEO of Glitch, which is a tech startup in New York City that's a community where people code together and create cool stuff online. And I've been a, a writer and a voice online and social media for about 20 years. Anil's bio says he's the only person to have been retweeted by Bill Gates, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Prince, forming a tidy triangle of his interests. Anil grew up outside Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the son of Indian immigrants. My dad was really into technology, still is, and he got one of the first Commodore computers. They were the sort of hot brand at the time. And we were really lucky. I mean, you know, the child immigrants to have anything like that was just beyond what we can imagine. And my folks... I think really saw it sort of falling into the same bucket as they cared a lot about education and this was the tool for education or whatever it was. That's certainly how they sold computers back then. And um, and so we, we had it and I was mesmerized. And the wild thing about it now is to think, you know, I would spend all of summer vacation tinkering around this computer and it didn't have an internet connection. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so like, what do you do on a computer all day that is not plugged into the internet? Like, you can't even <laughs> fathom that now, but that was that was what I did. The computers didn't connect you with anything, but the interest in computers did. You know, what I remember very distinctly, riding my bike to the bookstore, that was a thing we had back then, and they would have computer magazines, and you flip to the back, and they would have pages and pages of code, and you would type it in, type it in. and then you'd have a typo on, you know, page 42 <laughs> or whatever, and then, you know, you, you spent the rest of your summer vacation trying to fix that bug. But the, the point was, you, you would have this very, very technical thing. And millions of kids, normal kids, not not the supercomputer genius, whatever, but normal kids were doing this if their their parents were well off enough to be able to afford it. But like middle class kids were doing this. So that's what computers meant. His first encounter with mental illness came from his family. I had had a um, an uncle, uh, my mother's brother, who I was very close to 
uh, who'd lived with us when I was young. And this is very common in immigrant families is sort of other family members come over and they'll, they'll stay in the spare bedroom or the basement or, you know, whatever. And he stayed with us for a while. And then he went back to India. India is 10 and a half hours ahead of the time zone we were in. So when you get phone calls from them, it's the middle of the night. And those are never, it's almost never good news, you know? And I remember, a, you know, a phone call in the middle of the night and my, you know, my mother's reaction and being a little confused. I was pretty young and my folks went to India for the, you know, the funeral and all that kind of stuff. And so they were gone for like a week or two. And we, my sister and I, I have an older sister, we were sort of shuttled off into staying with the family friends for a week or two while they were gone. And, you know, I kind of was, you know, what happened? And they're like, well, your, your uncle passed away. And, uh, I suppose because I was young that, you know, I said, well, well, how did, you know, basically how did he die? And they said, uh, heart attack. That all happened when Anil was five. I remember being, gosh, 15 or 16. And I had a good friend who started smoking and, uh, as you know, pretty normal at that age. And, and I was like, well, you shouldn't smoke. I was very, you know, sort of goody tissues. And, you know, they're like, why, you know? I said, well, my uncle died of a heart attack because he was a smoker. And she looked at me and she's like, how old was your uncle? And I do the math and I'm like, you know, like 28, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and it was like a bolt of lightning. I was, you know, I just sort of looked at myself and I was like, you dumbass. You know, it was a really, um, it was really interesting because it was very personal. This was somebody I had been very close to and cared about and, inadvertently really reified the idea that mental illness was a secret and that there was a stigma. And I don't think that was intentional. I, I genuinely think it was a, you know, an urge to protect and, and that I had been very young, but I, I cannot imagine a more effective way to communicate that, um, you know, depression and death by suicide are these dark secrets that we don't speak of. With the trauma of learning the truth about his uncle's death still fresh in his mind, Anil's depression hit about a year later. As is often the case, right, these things are all conflated with, like, uh, my, you know, first girlfriend and first breakup and, you know, like all this sort of, like, normal tragedies <laughs> of, <laughs> of of your your late teens or, or whatever. And And so initially I was just like, Oh, I'm I'm stuck in that, and and there is a there's a very grand tradition of being a maudlin teenager, you know. There's an infinitely deep well if you want to go to. I want to listen to some sad music, and I want to dress like real real mopey, and I want you know people to think I'm this like you know tragic figure and 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 emotionally torn up. Man, they'll they'll feed you as much of that as you want, and and so you know I was. I was, uh, whatever, I was 14 or 15 when, like, you know, the first Nine Inch Nails records come down. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is me. I found my soul, you know. And and the shift from that that sort of performing, I have a, you know, a coal black heart and you should all be intimidated by my my seriousness and gravity as a teenager <laughs> into, into, you know, a real version of, like, I'm struggling and and I don't know how to process this. Boy, is that, a, a, for me at least, that was a thin line. That was a, a subtle gradation and that um, that I think could easily be dismissed, even by people that I was close to or friends or whatever, as like, oh, you're just being overly mawkish about this. Like you're just, you're playing it too hard. 
Yeah. You know, or it's like a you've phase. been listening too much of the cure. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, and, the, and so there was a, there was a dismissal, um, even for myself of like, oh, you're trying too hard or you just want to, you know, get attention or all, all, all the sort of, I think, usual dismissiveness. And so, you know, really through, through high school till I was 17, 18, I, I was just kind of was like, this isn't real. And, you know, and that was even as I was like, and I had always been, you know, again, like child of immigrants, like straight A student and, you know, top of the class and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, by senior year of high school, I was missing as many days of school as I was going to. And I was showing up late and I was just like, you know, things were in disarray. Anil gets through high school, but still isn't aware that the thing he was experiencing was depression. After graduation, he didn't go to college. He dove right in, became an entrepreneur, and started a company. One thing I can say very definitively not to do if you're trying to tend to your mental health is uh, don't become an entrepreneur and start a company. <laughs> so, so I had started a company um, actually the day after I graduated high school. So I was 17 years old. And, you know, sort of thrown in the deep end. I had never done, you know, tax paperwork and payroll and, you know, all these kind of wild things. And so initially, you know, this I was working in tech and there was a lot of demand. And so initially the company's going well. And then as things do, you know, I hit a rough spot, right? It was like, oh, these these clients aren't coming and, and the, the business isn't coming together. And I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills and keep the lights on, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it, again, this is a chicken and egg thing. Like, I don't know whether it was causal or, or effect, but uh, uh, the net result was, you know, I got to my early 20s and um, was deeply, deeply struggling just to pay my bills um, and and then really, really hit sort of the lowest point I'd been at uh, in terms of... Um, just feeling overwhelmed, just absolutely overwhelmed. And, and, you know, the funny thing is now being fluent in these things and, you know, seeing friends and even people I mentor and, and sort of talk about stuff, like classic things of like, it feels like the hardest thing in the world to get up, get out of bed and take a shower, you know? And these are, this is like textbook, right? Right. And at the time there was such a, it felt so overwhelming. I was like, gosh, nobody has ever had this problem. And I'm so embarrassed you know, it was very much, you power through it, suck it up. You know, in my, you know, in my personal case, oh, my parents have been through way worse. You come to the other side of the world, you know, when my dad came to the U.S., it was still Jim Crow times, right? And and if I'm going to tell him, like, I'm having a hard time getting out of bed, come on. You know what I mean? Come on. <laughs> and, and actually, I think they would have been wonderfully supportive. You know, my parents, I'm, I'm very fortunate that they're very, very... Um, you know, forward-minded considering how, how big the cultural leap is. But from my standpoint, if I would have gone to somebody like that in my, you know, in my family or whatever, to be able to sort of say, hey, here's this thing I'm struggling with, I, I think I would have, I, I would have felt ridiculous. The depression is boiling. He's got the stress of starting a company. He's super young, just red flags everywhere. So what does my man do? He packs up and moves to a huge, expensive city where he doesn't know anyone and tries to run his business there. It's not easy to like, I'm going to start a company and run it in New York City and I don't know anybody and I don't have any contacts and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I, But I was just like, had this sort of irrational belief that I could do it. And, and it went, as you'd expect, it was like, it was hard as hell. And, um, and, and you end up, uh, New York is a great place to, to, find people and be with people. And, but if you are alone, it's probably the loneliest place in the world. And so, you know, there was no support network of those things. And, 
Um, and then sort of, you know, hit another rough patch in the business and, and that cycle kicks in. Um, and sort of same thing with like, you know, personal life had been a little bit of a mess as is not uncommon for that, you know, stage of life. And, um, and it was, it was pretty dire. It was really, um, uh, that I think that negative feedback loop that happens, which is as you lose executive function, um, people see it, you know, and they see you're letting them down. And then that starts that spiral about self-worth and about it's overwhelming. And I want the pain to stop of feeling embarrassed, ashamed, uh, disappointed in myself, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. And it was a very, very acute, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, these days I'm, you know, moderately well-known in tech. And so I have a little bit of a public persona. I think the beginnings of that had sort of started where I, I, I realized I wanted to be so, you know, somewhat known for what I could do that was good. And, and that I was mortgaging in my feelings, the ability to ever have a positive public reputation because I was doing damage to it through, you know, this, what I felt was an inability. I, I would imagine too, I mean, in addition to being young and, and unconnected and in a place like New York, if you're starting companies, uh, were you able to make a distinction between yourself and the companies that you're starting? Or did you no, see like no. all the metrics coming in about profit and loss and expansion as judgments of yourself? Oh, absolutely. It's very personal. And this was a small company. So it was really me. And then, you know, people I could cajole into helping me, but it was, you know, sort of my name on the door. And so if we lost a client or especially if we had a problem with the business that was caused by me, you know, not being able to get out of bed. Uh, it, it was, it, and actually that, that is a fair judgment. If you're like, I asked this company to do something, they didn't do it. So I fired them. That's not unreasonable. They're not wrong. Now, it, it, you know, my internal narrative of that might've been, might be now, uh, well, I was depressed and I dropped the ball and we'd like to be empathetic to one another. And hopefully you have the, the patience and the resiliency to get through that. But, but, you know, objectively from, you know, within a capitalist framework, they're not wrong to say like, we asked this guy to do this thing. He didn't do it onto the next company. Um, but enough of those things pile up on top of, you know, the, the life stuff that happens. And, and, you know, by a couple years in, it was overwhelming. And you definitely feel that sense of my health is tied to my finances, is tied to my future, and I'm in this spiral and I don't know how to get out. One of Anil's crashes happened to coincide with a period when he had health insurance. That was kind of intermittent for a young entrepreneur. And he finally made an appointment. And I go to the doctor and I was so I was still very trepidatious. So I sort of danced around it. And I was like, so I'm I'm having some troubles, you know, very, very understated. And and I remember it's funny because like you always I, at least for me, I think you always want the doctor to be very like accommodating and like really great, you know, bedside manner or whatever. He basically just sort of laughed. And he was like, well, I know what this is, you know, and 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 it was you know, it was not, it, it wasn't meant to be dismissive or hurtful, but I remember in the moment just being mortified because I'd already been so embarrassed. Um, I, I, I could tell you, I was facing East. Like I know, I know the room, like I can picture it in my mind. And I was like, this guy just heard me sort of what I felt was bearing my soul. It's funny. I was probably less open than I am on this podcast, but at the time felt like tearing myself open and he laughed in my face, wow. you know? Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, and, and, and the irony is it actually led to a very positive path. Like he helped me, you know, find somebody to talk to. 
Um, I ended up um, after some time. I, it was a, this is I think often the case, like messing around with meds. This was in the '90s, so I ended up on uh, on Prozac, but it took a little while to find you know dose and all that kind of stuff that worked. But it was like actually very straightforward. It was like you need to talk to people and you need probably some help from medicine and you need to watch like sleep and diet and exercise. And I was like, I've never exercised in my life, you know? <laughs> and and I was like, you know, like I told you, I'm on the computer all day. And and so they they just sort of like everything that you'd ever hear, the basic lists of like, you know, what is your sleep schedule like? And and do you have routines and do you have support and like, you know, all the sort of checking the box things. But but at the time it was like I still had so much shame over it and so much guilt. And I felt like, you know, especially at that point when your life is so intertwined with your career, I had friends or people I felt were friends who were customers or clients of the company. And when you let them down because you are too depressed to do your work and you lose their business, you also lose their friendship. His business isn't working well, and he's just been told he has a chronic mental illness. In just a moment, how Anil Dash found better mental health through riding the subway and talking to people on a social media platform that isn't really around anymore. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show, making a few jokes. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying the illness a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It is serious. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, yes, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to Make It Okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Hey, speaking of tech companies, my own odd and psychologically harrowing stint at Amazon.com is covered in my upcoming memoir called, get this, The Hilarious World of Depression. It's about Clint e. D., it's about my own story, and the stories of a lot of people you've heard on the show. You can pre-order the book through hilariousworld.org, our worldwide website on the World Wide Web. Hey, let's put this part here instead of at the top of the show, because then we're not demonstrating compulsive behavior. Is depression funny? <laughs> For me, if I hadn't been able to laugh at it, laugh at myself, laugh at the absurdity of it, you know, like I always thought about like being a chief executive officer that who has no executive function was very funny to me. Mm -hmm. God, the least this damn thing could do is give me a punchline I can share with somebody else so they know we're on the same team. When last we left Anil Dash, he was trying to make it in New York with his own tech company. That led to massive stress to go with the trauma and depression he had faced as a kid. And he's just been told for the first time that he has an illness called depression, and he was working with a doctor on how to address it. And at this point, Anil made another bold move. He went out and got a job, like a normal person. So taking this job, that's, that's your first boundary that you set up. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I had had, you know, I had, well, I had, you know, little things here and there. And then I had, uh, there was actually an erstwhile startup that I tried to join that, that 
was sort of run into the ground as I had joined. And that was a, <laughs> another one of those setbacks. It was one of those, oh my gosh. Uh, but this job that I got in 2001 was um, working at the Village Voice. Oh, okay. And I had, you know, uh, I'd first when I'd first come to New York, I had lived in these villages, I, I still do, and, and walked by their big sign in front of their building. And, um, you know, uh, I, as people who know me know, I'm a big Prince fan. And I remember as a kid reading uh, uh, my friend's uh, mom's boyfriend had had uh, the copy of The Village Voice. And then I would listen to this Prince song uh, that goes, all the critics love you in New York. And, and I remember connecting the dots in my head and being like, that's what he was talking about. He's talking about that place. Ah, so then it was a magic place. Yeah, that was, in, that was like this magical institution, the kind of place that like Prince would write a song about, you know? And, and so I got that gig and it felt like this is turning the corner. And, and I had, and a lot of things had come together. I had started writing um, and through blogging online had found, you know, people like me. I found my cohort. I was not, you know, dependent on trying to befriend customers of my company or something like that. And, um, you know, I had spent a little bit of time in the music business and sort of gotten connected to folks. And so I had, you know, just started going to shows and I would go to, you know, the museums and I felt at a very, very visceral level that the two things that I connected to that grounded me were this online community through the sort of very, very brand new world of social media and, and New York City, you know. I could ride the train all day and be just happy. Like it felt good. It felt like this is this place that I'm learning how the subways work and I'm not, you know, getting confused by where do I make this transfer and I can go on a Monday, I can go to the museum and it's free and I can walk around Central Park and it's free and it doesn't matter that I'm broke and go online and have that same kind of experience, but with people I just met. Social media back then was pretty much blogs, people commenting on blogs, no Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. This was before MySpace. You know, the other thing that was hard in realizing was that as I got into my 30s and and really got um, good at managing it, that um, I I felt a little bit of guilt as friends kept struggling or that they were like, because I didn't stay on meds for very long. And... You know, they would be like, I'm going to be on this the rest of my life to manage these things. This is chronic for me. And I felt a little bit like, you know, I was very fortunate. So I was very, you know, I was, I was thankful. And then like, oh, was it real or was mine not as bad? Or, you know, they, there's this sort of weird comparison thing that would happen where it was like, I'm supposed to be worried about this all the time. And I remember almost that absence, um, not, you know, I, I think it was a couple years into, um, after my wife and I got married and I was just talking one day, I was like, I don't worry about it anymore. And that felt like, you know, obviously it's good, happy, you celebrate it. I felt a little terrified. I was like, aren't I supposed to be constantly vigilant against this potential monster that is going to rear its head? And the truth is like these days, I really don't worry about it. And, And I say that, I, you know, I don't, I'm very keenly aware of very many people I love dearly who this is a, constant presence in their lives and always will be, you know, and managing it is a constant effort. And so I don't, you know, I don't want to dismiss that, but I think that also, I wish somebody's ever told me, you know, you might kind of be free of this someday. You know, you're never totally liberated and it's the thing that's on my mind, but that I don't think about it every day and I don't worry about it every day. And I don't 
think, oh, you know, whatever, I'm jet lagged and now I got to be on pins and needles about, am I going to be able to hold it together? Like that stuff is not my life anymore and there's no cure, but like you can get better. Anil Dash got better in part because he found more of his people. And he did so not by going door to door, but through networked computers. He had what he still sees as genuine open connections with like-minded humans, including Prince. Anil got to know Prince through social media, which sounds great. Imagine doing that. But Anil is troubled by what he sees going on out there now in social media, especially for people with vulnerable minds. You can't just say social media broadly, right? Each of these different platforms and technologies has its own traits and its own positive and negative behaviors. And we try and tend to lump them in together. And, and that's very reductive, you know, and, and, and it's sort of like if you say, are books good or bad? Are films good or bad, right? It's like right. These, are, these are media. These are things that are very, very rich and nuanced and can be used for, you know, films can be used for hateful propaganda and films can be used for some of the most exalted moments of your life in this sublime art, right? The form is the form. But you can do things with it. And, and to that point, you know, what is the purpose of this? And again, like extending the film analogy, is it like Michael Bay wants to make another Transformers movie? Uh-huh. Or is this like Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Right? These are different things. They could be on the same screen. And, and I started in an era when everybody's social media presence was a place they made themselves. Now, there are barriers to that. That means you have to have all this technical knowledge and all those things, and I don't dismiss that. But one of the things about that was that it was definitely your place, and you felt a sense of ownership and a sense of responsibility around it that was akin to having guests come by your house. You know, And I mean, I think it's conceivable you could have somebody come by your house and you shout slurs at them, but it seems unlikely. <laughs> um, but think people act very, very differently when they've had a couple beers and they are out at a sporting event, right? Like that venue affords a different thing. And so social media is this like set of different choices and they are informed by how they make money. They are informed by the context around them. They're informed by who's allowed to have amplification not just a voice, but who gets promoted on that homepage or in your timeline or in your stream when you're on that site. And those choices have a lot of the impact because the, the positives, I, I think, don't get sung enough, which is to say, for me personally, uh, nearly all of my closest friends, all of the opportunity I've had in business as somebody that didn't know anyone and was trying to make a go of it as a, you know having a career, um, somebody I've gotten to be like socially active. I've learned so much about the world around me and about the people around me, communities that I can be a part of or that I can help. These are the greatest gifts of my life, you know, short of like my child, you know, my family, like all, almost all of the great blessings of my life come from being out there and being vulnerable on social media in a way that let other people connect. Anil helped develop Movable Type. It's publishing software for blogs, so you can use it to create your own unique site and readers don't even know that the software is there. That came out in 2001. Since then, a lot of blogs have just disappeared because people use Twitter or Facebook or Instagram now to reach the world. And now the barrier is anybody that has that same, you know, naive, good-hearted intent that I did when I was 25 and started getting on social media where they're like, I want to do it too. I'm going to go make friends. Can't because it is controlled by a few platforms run by a few people that are really deeply thoughtless about this, that are just, you know, um, they are optimizing for 
their you know returns and their their profits without regard to whether it's good or bad. And now, if it's tactically useful, they will absolutely claim the good parts. Oh, these two people met in the comments on YouTube and they got married, so therefore YouTube comments are good, right? And sort of similarly, they will claim, they'll actually, you know, acknowledge the bad stuff insofar as it lets them keep making money. Like, yeah, we ought to do something about that someday. And and that's about it, right? Like the, 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 the range of responses is very narrow. And part of what's telling is they are not people whose lives were changed by social media. Mark Zuckerberg didn't get the opportunities he has in life because he got connected to Facebook. He got the opportunities he has in life because he came from a rich family and went to Harvard. You know, and and so like they cannot understand at a visceral level what it meant to have a, the doors open for you by social media. It has only ever been an economic opportunity for them, and they already had a lot of economic opportunities to begin with. I don't know if you're familiar with the term uncanny valley. It refers to the feeling of discomfort when something artificial looks very close to real, but not quite. A robot with a human face, for instance, that is still just barely not human looking. If it looked exactly human, that'd be one thing. But just barely not human, that woogity feeling you get, that's the uncanny valley. I bring this up because I get an uncanny valley feeling around social media. It's human contact, but not quite. What I'll say is two things. One is we don't have the the folk culture of documenting. If you do these things, these things work. And and that's particularly, I feel that pain particularly acutely. I had run a a startup for a few years with uh, Gina Trapani, who founded Lifehacker and is now at Postlight. And she's a great technologist. And the tool she and I had built together was to help you have your social networks be good for you. And so it would tell you, oh, this many people thanked you this month, or you congratulated this many people, or here are the positive things people are saying. And it would sort of give you a positive feedback loop. And and the truth of it is the startup died because the Twitters and Facebooks of the world didn't want to enable it to have access to data to be able to do these things. Uh, and the irony was that we were doing this at the same time as Cambridge Analytica was doing their analysis, but they got the data and we didn't. <laughs> but at any rate, um, you know, that, you know, these tools are not designed to give you those positive feedback loops. And so you're not wrong in saying they're not documented because it's almost impossible to document the things specific to your experience because they don't let you have that level of control. And that gets to the other side of this, which is the design of the tools. You know, you can know your number of likes and you can know your number of retweets. Like there are these very, very narrow metrics, but you cannot, for example, keep a record of whether you help somebody change their mind. You have no analytics on whether you sort of displayed kindness, right? Or elicited a response from someone that indicates that they felt reassured by what you said. And no, those aren't things that like the software can deduce on their own, but there are things we can signal. Right? There are ways that we could build tools that sort of have that positive feedback loop. And I see this where like, you know, I, I, the company I run now, Glitch, uh, is a, it's a creative community. So it's, it's like YouTube, but you're making apps and software and, and things like that. And, you know, one of the biggest choices is we're not, we're not putting ads on it. So we're not, you know, building that, that feedback loop. But also you can thank people. There's just a button to click. If you raise your hand, you say, I'm having trouble with this code that I'm writing and somebody wants to come in and help you, you can thank them. And so the only metric that shows up on your profile is how often you've been thanked by other people in the community. And all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, here's this community of people that want to help each other and that are proud of showing off that they've been thanked by other people. Like the incentives you build, people respond to. And we know that from 
10,000 years of people building civilizations together and building cities together, building towns together. What are the rules we build? What are the, what are the, you know, the constraints we build around our built environments, our physical space? All we have to do is map those same lessons about how we get together at a coffee shop in an auditorium for a concert hall uh, and bring those online. Anil thinks the key to getting those ideas online, making more human and humane social media, is to use methods already in place. Well, I think one of the things to be keenly aware of is how much the major platforms reward performance right now. Right? I think Instagram is the most obvious of this. Like you see this, people talk about this all the time. You know, on the gram, I look photogenic and I got my perfect smile and my perfect filter and I'm in this glamorous place. And then inside I'm not, right? And, and so what is it about the design of that platform, about those tools, about that technology that is encouraging people to not represent where they're at in their life? And there is no reason we can't build tools that encourage vulnerability and honesty and expression and reward reassuring each other and being present for each other. And again, I look at everybody's, you know, house of worship and everybody that goes to um, anything that has those sort of rituals around sustaining and nourishing each other. And we, we don't have that in social media where you can say, you know, I understand how you feel and I've been there too. And what that means is because the tools aren't designed for doing it, we have to interject that on our own. We have to layer that on our own. And I think about this a lot. Whenever I am struggling or down, and that happens, I mean, you know, I run a business and it's a tough, this is a tough industry to be in. And I feel every day the responsibility to dozens of people who work for me of like, I can't screw this up, man. And, you know, my sort of consistent practice in that is if I am feeling like this is hard how am I going to get through this? And what in the old days I would have worried about, am I going to get depressed? Truthfully, is you know, those sort of triggers. What I generally do is try to go online and be as vulnerable as I can. Hmm. And I have the the privilege of doing that. You know what I mean? Like if you're a CEO of a tech company, they let you get away with a lot in this world. And to use that towards saying, here's how I'm feeling, or here's how the mistakes I worry about making, or here's how I've screwed up, or you know, even more simply, here is art that I appreciate. Here is something that's meaningful to me. Here's an experience that I've been through. Every time, every time people respond with me too. And that is such a, just such a reassurance. Like it's a, it's a, it's a great gift that I feel very lucky to have, which is that I have a network of people out there in the world. And many of them are total strangers. I, I get, I'm a nervous flyer sometimes. And I was like, man, I'm really not enjoying this turbulence right now. And now I've got this group chat of like four or five folks who are just like, every time we text each other about like, you know, how's that flight going for you? And it's like, people will be, you know, incredibly generous if you can let down your guard. And not everybody has the luxury of doing it, but we absolutely could design more of our spaces online to do that. And if we did, it would be so good for the world, but also for everybody who's ever been alone, certainly everybody who's ever confronted depression. Perhaps if there are more people in power thinking like Anil does, then our connections online can take place in kinder and more helpful places, which would be nice. What strikes me about Anil Dash, and always has struck me, I've been reading his stuff for years, is the way he looks to the future. 
not necessarily with optimism. He wouldn't say that everything's bound to get better, more humane and, and kinder. But he has hope. Hope that the better nature and intention of humanity will manage to push its way through and we will connect in more meaningful ways. His hope gives me hope. What do you know now about mental health and mental illness that you wish you knew a long time ago? Oh, there's a lot. You know, the couple quick things. The first is um, that it is that it was part of our family, and it has been. And that, um, you know, in the most positive, purest sense, that I could see this as something that connects me to my family's history. You know, growing up an immigrant and being disconnected from our traditions in some ways and our just our, you know, the village that all my cousins grew up in and everything like that. Um, as much as it's been stressful, a burden, challenging, uh, there was something ultimately reassuring. Like, I am part of this family. I must be, because otherwise I wouldn't be nuts in this way. You have a history. Yeah. 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 That really, that was, um, you know, it's a, it's a little dark humor, but that was very meaningful to me at points in my life where I was like, at least I have this evidence, this proof that I'm connected to, to this larger context. And then the other part was just, it's real. It counts. This is a thing. Um, I'm not the only one to go through it. I'm uh, my, you know, my symptoms or my, you know, presentation of these things might be different, but it still counts. Uh, those are things that I wish somebody had given me the little, you know, the rubber stamp, uh, like the gold star, like it's okay, this counts. I think that would have been incredibly meaningful, you know, especially in my, you know, early mid twenties when I was sort of at the worst struggles with this, that somebody had just been like, this is legit too. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our producer for Digital Things. I don't want to call her a digital producer because then she sounds like hologram Tupac. Phyllis Fletcher is our editor. She lives in Seattle and we live in St. Paul and Christina lives in L.A., but we all have computers. Don't worry, we have computers. Our intern is Ariana Wilson. Recording engineer for this episode is Veronica Rodriguez. Technical director, Corey Schreppel. The recording engineer at Glitch was Keisha T.K. Dutas. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and makeitokay.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. Makeitokay.org has information that can help you and your loved ones starting that conversation can be awkward, but Make It Okay has tips on what to say or not to say. Stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at makeitokay.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. Complete archive of past episodes there. We're also on Twitter and come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening there with your fellow Thwadballs. We're planning an upcoming show on there right now, so go check it out. See if you want to take part in that. 
On our next episode, Charlene de Guzman had a few things going on. Childhood trauma, a sex and love addiction, a role on Hannah Montana, and some work on the side. Um, When I was 21, I started stripping for a year. And like at that point, I was like, I really have it all figured out. Like, this is who I am. Like, I'd be giving a lap dance and I'd be thinking like, fuck you, dad. This is what you did. Like, it was bad. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Say I'm a hopeless case Say it ain't so Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know